Good evening, everyone. My name is Joshua Gilliland, one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. We are here to discuss She-Hulk, Episode 4, Is This Real Magic? And the answer is, it's not real law. So we can definitely have an in-depth discussion there. With me uh, on this continuing journey is Jordan, Kathy, Mark, and Io. And we're going to have a rip-roaring good time with lots of Civ Pro and other legal issues that appear in this episode. Starting in, I guess, alphabetical order. Uh, Io, how are you? I'm well. I am doing very well this lovely evening. What did you think of this episode? Oh, man, it may be my favorite one so far. Really enjoyed it. Again, I like to remind everyone that I have zero perspective when it comes to the MCU. I kind of love it all. But this episode, I mean, I literally paused it at some point. I was screaming at my brother. I thought something was on fire. <laughs> Loved it. Kathy, how about you? I really like the introduction of Wong and his BFF, Madison. I just thought that was hilarious. Um, she was, I, I thought she was so great. The, the, the actress who portrays her, I thought was so great. I thought it was so funny. It was unexpected, I think. I didn't expect that. So I like that introduction. Legal, you know, we'll talk about the legal issues and what's what's problematic and inaccurate. But um, I, I, I like that part of the story that, you know, that with Wong and Madison. Jordan? I'm doing pretty well. Um, I enjoyed the episode. It wasn't my favorite so far, but it, it wasn't terrible. Madison was amusing, and her interaction with Wongers was pretty <laughs> priceless. Um, the courtroom scenes left some things to be desired, but I assume we're going to get to that. Oh, oh, we will. Uh, Mark, how about you? <laughs> Uh, all right, so we are four episodes in now. We started, I think, at each of the three episodes, we kept saying we will assess as each goes on. I will wait and see what I think. All right, so I am, I'm pretty uh, conclusive or have concluded that this is just going to be a, a silly, campy show throughout, right? It, it's, it's no turning back. It started out possibly having some seriousness to it, but it becomes sillier each time along. And, and the legal aspects, as we'll discuss, become, I think, sillier and less realistic. So beauty's in the eye of the beholder. You know, I could love it and someone else could hate it because it just depends on what your expectations are and what you think you're going to get. I watched the original Batman movie uh, a week or so ago from 1966. It is so silly and stupid, but I love it because I know it's going to be silly and stupid. And I remember it as a kid when it seemed to be a lot more serious because you just didn't realize how silly and stupid it was. So if you look at it silly and silliness, yeah, it was a fun episode, you know, for the, a lot of the reasons you guys stated. But, uh, you know, I, I, it, it's not going to be law and order. This is, this is going to be like Boston legal. Yeah. Yeah, at least it's not Ally McBeal. So I uh, I enjoy it. I do enjoy the camp. I enjoy the fourth wall breaking because it it works with the delivery. But the the legal parts of it, it's like oh, it's so easy to get it right. 
so like the, that's the the moments that are hard for me but the humor worked so there there was a lot that i enjoyed but i do have moments of like what how are we in court and we're going to address those issues uh but yeah it it does remind me a lot of the 1980s john byrne comic run and uh, i think that's a good thing so I I had to watch it a second time with subtitles because when they were saying Donnie Blaze, that sounds a lot like Johnny Blaze. Johnny Blaze is the ghostwriter. Donnie Blaze is this magician uh, in this kind of love letter to, uh, you know, the it, I guess it's the Magic Castle down in, in Los Angeles. Down for me, up for those in San Diego, uh, or... or, or also down from Oregon and for those who are uh east it's west uh but you know there's a famous venue for magic in, in Los Angeles so I it's I think it's a love letter to that uh that they do lean in on uh but seeing this uh not very practical magic taking place where the magic trick is sending someone inebriated either to another dimension or another state where they have to figure out how to get home. There are problems with that. Jordan, you brought up, is this a crime? And can you explain to us your thoughts on, is it or is it not? I'm kind of torn on this because it feels like it should be. I mean, you are transporting someone from one place to another either with their consent or with somewhat dubious consent, it feels a lot like kidnapping, but I'm not sure it is. There's no informed consent that this is what could happen and that you end up in a different state or you have to go fight a talk, work with a talking goat to get six drops of your blood and then to fight goblins and all this other stuff and you pop out holding a heart that sounds a lot like kidnapping because there was no consent for that type of adventure it was go on stage for a magic trick magic tricks don't have you wake up in albuquerque uh where you started in la so i i think i think you're on to something there that's Uh, true but what what i keep ending up back at is that Blaze is portrayed as so completely inept that he might not have meant to. Like, he legitimately might have just thought it was going to be a cute disappear from one box, reappear in the other box kind of magic trick. Problematic. So I want everyone to take a swing at this. Kathy, do you see any civil liability issues between Madison with a Y landing in another dimension with a talking goat and goblins? Yeah, but it's civil... not where you think it would be. <laughs> you stole my line. Um, Sorry. Yes, no, it's fine. Um, definitely civil liability, right? You have negligence for sure, right? You know, if he didn't mean to send her there, right? Is that is that negligence? Um, and you know, when I was, when we were talking about, or we'll get to this later, but I, I thought she might be the only one withstanding to actually sue him. Um, because she's the, she's the one who clearly suffered damages. Now, what are her damages sound like? She kind of had some fun along the way. 
Um, but she did lose six drops of blood. Um, who knows what's going to happen to that. But um, yeah, definitely negligence, you know, false imprisonment, maybe, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. One of the thoughts that I had, at least on the, the criminal liability side was, is this human trafficking? And I think Mark pointed out in the chat that it was only women that he was moving through these these portals. So, yeah, that's well, we've only seen two show two of his yes. tricks. So maybe he was, but both women are inebriated, so they have diminished capacity, and they land in the hinterland someplace or another plane of reality. Uh, Mark, you've been typing like a madman on the outline. Uh, other thoughts before, <laughs> with this? I, I'm just trying to figure out, again, it depends on, right, if you want to look at it as individual episodes or a series versus the context of the Marvel Universe. Because I have noticed a pattern with everything connected to the mystic arts, um, I can always say or Kamar, Taj, uh, Doctor Strange world. It, it keeps like sliding down from anything serious. And my recollection of the character was that it was always a really, really serious character, which is why I think I wasn't a, a big fan of it uh, when I was a kid. But how careless are these people? I mean, even in the Doctor Strange films with respect to Wong, he was always the one telling uh, Dr. Strange about, you know, how careful one has to be with practicing everything. And yet they kick this guy out or he fails out, drops out, and he retains the magic. It, it, it looks like a, uh, every time I see Sling it. Ring. It's lingering. Yeah. But it, it looks like um, I have Brass a pair. Knuckles. Brass knuckles. Brass knuckles. Yes. <laughs> that he's going to use on somebody. Uh, how does he have that? I mean, is that not the property? of the school of the mystic arts or whatever it would be called. I mean, isn't that like, you know, when you join the track team, they give you a uniform, but you give it back at, at the end of the season. So how does he have this? If So if anything, when we talk about the civil lawsuit against him, that would have, that would have seemed to have been the, the quickest, easiest uh, action to just grab that from him. Cause then otherwise he's just some trick magician it doesn't seem to know anything other than the, the the elderly man that's with him. Not quite sure who that is yet. I think it's Cornelius was his name from from the subtitles. Uh, but I don't know if he's is he exi Donnie Blaze doesn't seem to have existed in Marvel Universe before this. No, I don't know no. if that guy. I mean, that guy. There's something going on with that guy. We'll we'll find out. I'm sure. Yeah, I O. Any further analysis to add on uh, the magician who really needs a lawyer? <laughs> no, I mean, I do think the whatever harm that the, the women suffer there, he should at least, you know, he would at least bear some civil liability for that. So even if the actual sending them to another portal, even if they, you know, sort of consented to whatever happens, you know, sort of the blood and whatever injuries, maybe Madison and <laughs> with, would have suffered. I think he would, he would certainly need to bear some liability for that. I think those are all the plaintiffs to go seek out. Ah. And you build a case with multiple people who've been injured by, you know, I was sent to Wisconsin from LA 
and it was in like that's an injury because that yeah. person then had to get back home so was it a 800 dollars plane flight from madison without <laughs> any luggage or anything or is this uh because I, I think that's the way to to build out a type of case against him uh the i think the sling ring we're, we'll get into because i think that's yeah. huge uh, for getting into the liability issues. Now, of course, we do not know if in order to attend the show, they signed a waiver of some sort. You would think so if you were the magician guy. I mean, obviously for this type of show, no, you wouldn't think so. Um, mm-hmm. Or if the ticket uh, has a whole bunch of language on the back that obviously nobody read uh, to indicate a consent or a waiver. I think a comparison would be like going to a baseball game and you're not paying attention to the game and you get hit with a pop fly. That would, I think. That would be reasonable and certainly foreseeable, but not that that, you know, fly ball then sends you into another dimension yeah. <laughs> where you have the to talk and demons. Yeah, that's sort of, so I think whatever waiver or whatever they would have signed, I mean, you would simply, you know, just have to challenge it and then say, well, okay, it's foreseeable that in a magic show, I might, you know, certain things might happen, but not a new plane ticket or Greyhound bus ticket. Or you actually lose an arm. Well, because yeah, I was expecting someone to step through the portal part way and then for it to close and then to have a mess. And, <laughs> so yeah a couple again no one goes to a like a baseball game and expects for the pitcher to shoot them and or i think kind summon of, demons that attack them <laughs> yeah it's like that's not the normal assumption of risk for going to a a, a game or a magic show so i i think that's part of the analysis here yeah. now going building upon that we have you know a scene with dad visiting his daughter and he's very upset that uh jen does not file a police report after four dudes assaulted her and battered her and she has the comment about uh uh like i don't need to file a police report because these guys will never be caught jordan as a public defender do da's talk like that uh not not generally no they're usually very pro-police people um and also, as an aside on that, she gets jumped by four guys, and then they run immediately back to their car. Is her first thought not going, well, I'm going to write that license plate down? She could have jumped out to the car pretty easily. <laughs> she could also have grabbed the car if she'd really felt like it. Yeah. I mean, there was another post credit scene with her holding the car up for her brother to change a tire, so... You know, not out of her wheelhouse, but if what she really wants to do is involve the police, just jot down their license plate number and have them go arrest the wrecking crew before they become the wrecking crew. Yeah, uh, w- armed with enhanced construction equipment, out harming people. You think again? It's a quick hop, and mm-hmm. she could have put the uh, thrown the vehicle uh, into a mountain. So again, there's. Uh, issues but dad is uh we're getting to defensive property so digging holes 
sounds like we could be (laughs) in the the realm of you can have a home security system. You can't have landmines. You can't have spring guns or a tiger trap. Like you can't kill people who are trying to trespass with those type of uh, traps around your property. So I'm curious if he's leaning towards that or if there's something else in play. But uh, yeah, I think we can have an interesting defensive property uh, being built. Um, I read holes and I started thinking he was premeditating just a little murder. (laughs) Still a little bit of murder. (laughs) Again, lights, security cameras, all of that's okay. But if it's maybe he was just burying wires for the security cameras and lights that he was going to put up. Right. Let's go with that. Yeah, that's permissible. <laughs> it's the, it's the uh, uh, I want the landmine to go off is, is not. So, all right. So we get the bar talk. And Jordan, you identified a couple issues here. Why is Jennifer still per, uh, briefing the parole hearing that she won? discuss so i was curious about this and then i saw something online that i guess someone screenshotted her to-do list from one of the episodes and it says um to finalize something to do with the inhibitor and Mm -hmm. i think you guys talked about that last week about the order that he wear a can't transform into abomination inhibitor so it's possible that they're um asking to reconsider that uh, condition of his parole or something like that and they're briefing that issue um, that wouldn't be out of the uh, the realm of question or actually even all that un- out of the ordinary okay um, that logically makes sense since it was kind of offered spur of the moment and probably wasn't again it wasn't in a petition or anything so they, they might have questions that need to be explained so good eye Kathy, uh, yes. you also had uh, notes on this. Yeah, so I, I did look at the, um, I paused it and uh, looked at what was on her to-do list. Um, and it, it's a very long to-do list, but uh, relevant to this discussion, she has two things. It says one is finalize the Blons- Blonsky injunction, which I was like, when did we even get an injunction? What is that about? And then it was a uh, prep guidance language on the Blonsky inhibitor. And that's what I think Jordan was referencing, um, which I could see, yes, that they're being, you know, because they're going to have this inhibitor, in, inhibitor in place, they might need to work out some issues with that. I don't know what they mean by guidance language, but, you know, maybe it's like some parameters on, on what it's actually going to do. But I had no idea what, what the injunction was in reference to, and it didn't seem to make sense in terms of the, the legal con- context that was happening with the parole hearing they could be used just using the term injunction wrong as a uh, stand-in for condition of his parole so i mean when the parole board orders his parole they're going to prepare an order and uh, some other kind of legal documents that outline all the language on it and um, jen and the whoever the lawyer for the state that would have been handling that was could be arguing about exactly what language they're going to put in there. It, it could, I think you're right. I I think it could be a mix of 
the moments when people start posting status messages in Facebook that say, under the Rome statute, you cannot use my personal identifiable information. And they don't know that what they're citing pertains to war crimes. They're just using legal words like they're magic. And uh, I think we could just, it could be someone who said, let's use the word injunction because it sounds cool. So there's, it, it could be that. Mark, that, anything that to add? Sorry, sorry, Josh. That, that scene could have also potentially have been out of order and edited into this episode. It it, it could, I mean, because it was a somewhat useless storyline, substantive storyline scene. You know, it's more about her interactions with guys and, and dating and just filler talk with the paralegal. And the only legal at, legal discussion was preparing, uh, working on the, uh, the parole hearing. So uh, it is possible that it, it might have actually gone in the prior episode and they edited it and put it into this one. Which is the important thing to remember with how they make TV shows is things are filmed and there's editing and they could have just moved it around. That, that's a very good point. Which is why sometimes, do you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Like the injunction, there, there could have, they could have cut out the scene or, you know, the comments when there was discussion of injunction in a prior episode of this one. A couple of the other things on the to-do list were um, research precedents on likeness IP for Ms. Pete. Ms. Pete is referring to Megan the Stallion because her, her actually, her legal name is Megan Pete. Um, and then there was another one, draft cease and desist for Pete v. Runa. So that made me think that it was meant to be in this episode because it's following the Megan the Stallion. Um, it's, it's, it's a reference to that storyline. And a cease and desist to a shapeshifter makes a whole lot of sense. <laughs> so good eye. Well done. Uh, Jordan, you also raised the issue of does can you maintain the attorney-client privilege by being in a bar and talking about a case? I think the answer is it depends. Uh, it's definitely not plan A. You can't have a reasonable expectation of privacy talking to your client in a room surrounded by people because you're that's or to your not... paralegal about your client. Yeah. So the paralegal about the client, I think it depends on specific factors where they are. I would not recommend doing that. Uh, because you create so much risk, but I, I think it is plausible. Anyone want to weigh in on pros or, or the how it could work or how it could affordably backfire? So hearing that this sounds like a horrible idea, why don't we just keep it at that and uh, uh, move forward? So we have uh, what I think is fun because again civil litigator what are Wong's causes of action against Donnie Blaze and this is where a whole bunch of us went hog wild with different notes <laughs> and it's it's glorious so we have a cease and desist and a note on what basis Mark I think that was your point care to elaborate well and you know we started to talk about you know what standing does he have to to bring a cease and desist um I'm, I'm trying to think, you know, sometimes you can, you can allege that somebody defamed as a group. I don't know if there's something 
some sort of standing that would enable him uh, to bring something to stop Blaze from continuing on because it could harm the world uh, or universe or whatever he said. Um, you know, again, I think it would have made a lot more sense to to get the whatever you guys call the brass knuckles ring uh, back from him, and that seemingly would have taken care of everything, right? Because that was the only thing he was able to use. I mean, presumably he learned some dark magic, black magic, whatever it is from the school, but it, it was the device that enabled him to to open things up and and do the cool things i guess um but yeah and it seemed a little strange of course but it was i guess fun lighthearted so my yeah. only thought oh sorry josh no, go ahead jordan go ahead so my only thought on the sling ring and why you can't just take it back from him is i was thinking back to a couple of years ago there was a line of uh doctor strange comics where uh, Doctor Strange gets his own magic workshop and he learns how to make a bunch of these mystic artifacts and makes this cool looking axe. So maybe they taught Donnie Blaze to make a sling ring mm. and he didn't take it from Carmartage. He just made it himself. There's good analysis uh, on that note, but he also sounds like a horrible student. Uh, let, let's talk about the client interview before we get on to all the causes of action. So normally in civil litigation if you're going to represent a party you you have a representation agreement there's a retainer agreement describing the hourly fees uh, a conflict check is done before that signed to make sure that there's no conflicts of interest between the lawyers and uh you know the prospective client uh and that's in writing wong doesn't stick around for that. So I know that's boring lawyer pointers, but a little lip service would have been nice for that. And Wong also tosses out that there should not be any unlicensed magicians. Who's going to be the authorizing authority for that? Is it the state of California going to start issuing out licenses? Are all 50 states going to have to come out with sorcerer? uh applications and accreditation or is like how's that supposed to work so just the licensing issue i think is interesting because the way our country works that would turn into a state issue because how many national licenses are there and i'm going to say not a ton uh unless we're going to treat it say like having a security clearance and like, which is a different can of worms to, to get into. So I just, I thought that was interesting. But uh, so with the, the two causes of action that are mentioned in this hearing are unfair competi uh, competition and gross negligence. And uh, Kathy, you raise a question that about these two let's write please raise the issue <laughs> so I, I think i referred to so but does wong even have standing to sue on the for these causes of action right what what damage does he suffer for unfair competition he's not holding shows 
and, you know, holding a competing magic show where he's doing the same thing, right? I mean, I think it's more he's trying to prevent harm from happening to the world, but that's not really an unfair competition claim either. And I just didn't think he had standing. Same for gross negligence. You know, we, we, we said that Madison probably has standing to bring a claim for negligence, but, and, and why are you going to bring gross negligence and not regular negligence too? That was another thought that I had. Yeah, I thought it was easier to have standing for unfair competition, uh, even though I don't entirely understand how it can work out. I think that's a more plausible uh, argument to make that in a complaint. The gross negligence, I think, is problematic because what's the connection to Wong? Now, if bodies and goblins are landing in Wong's apartment, he definitely has standing. Well, Madison did. Yeah, Maybe that's Madison, the damage. Yeah, it's <laughs> a drunk woman landed in my apartment. And spoiled the end of an episode of a TV show. I mean... Yeah. A little damaging. <laughs> Again, she like landed, she did drop a heart in his apartment. So like there's maybe that's the causal connection of <laughs> one of his uh you know audience members landed in my apartment <laughs> holding a heart and and there's my and she spoiled the sopranos, which is god knows how many years old. <laughs> so maybe that's the connection here, but I uh, I think I don't know if that's gross negligence. It might be just negligence. Well, the first thing that came to my mind is what kind of security is at this top school mystical arts place that like any drunk woman can just show up in a hole and pop out. But uh, I, I would have brought this in in federal court because Wang's either in Nepal or New York, not entirely clear where. Uh, and uh, if I can ever stay out of state court. Uh, I, I'd come up with with trying to create federal jurisdiction. So it, they probably, I mean, hey, they, they mess up everything else. I'm sure they could have met federal jurisdictional requirements if they had wanted to by writing it in the script. I, yeah, I think diversity jurisdiction could have been achieved here because you just say the amount in controversy is in excess of, you know, 75,000. Yeah, I think they might have gone up to 100,000, uh, okay. but, but it's one or the other. If it did, that's recent. Uh, it's been a little over a year since I, I had to file a federal complaint. So there's that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but yeah, state court is a little easier. <laughs> so I know lawyers who, who are afraid of federal court because of uh, the pacing and, and uh, the civil rules, of, uh, the civil procedure requirements. Uh, some of them are, I know lawyers who are uncomfortable with that. Uh, anyway, uh, anything else that we want to build on for uh, the the unfair comp or the gross negligence analysis before we get into why are they in court? <laughs> well, I guess the, the only other thing I'll say is that for everyone who's watching or listening, if you're served with legal process of a document just because you magically make it disappear, doesn't mean the case <laughs> goes away. Whether you tear it up, burn it, throw it out the window or somehow send it to another dimension does not matter. Yeah. What did, oh. let's talk about that meeting. Cause hmm? that seemed uh, plausible. 
that it's not being done just by an email or a phone call that they're they meet face to face to discuss it i i thought that at least was a plausible solution uh anyone else have thoughts on that yeah i mean i think you're right i think that's a plausible solution and something that if you're really going to try to settle a problem it works sometimes better than a lawsuit because lawsuits are expensive and they take forever contrary to the tv show um if you can talk it out so much the better my problem with it was i don't think lawyers just get to hand over paperwork and go you you've been served they're representative of a party in the case i think it turns on the state now i remember i haven't looked at this in 20 years I thought there was a provision that allowed a California attorney to to do that or expressly prohibited it. Mm. I don't remember which. I just know that I've never thought that was a good idea. You hire a process service server uh, because they have high stress jobs. Um, it's it's why that Jessica Jones was doing uh, process serving and uh, in, in her show because she could uh, as oh, opposed could have brought to Jessica Jones into it. <laughs> brought, uh, Damn right, Matt Murdock into um, into Spider Man. They could have could have linked it back up. That would have been great. Yeah, they yeah because they there was a huge process server issue in that episode where they were suing the owner of a strip club, yeah. and uh yeah, she had to use her strength to get a Ferrari or some really nice car. Yeah. I don't remember the car, but she had to lift it up in order to. Uh, yeah. So again, we've seen pro- enhanced process servers in the MCU before, uh, but this is on the other half of the country. So let's get into the following issues of why are they in court? And I mean, I, I had a first watching this, I had a huh moment because you file a complaint. Uh, you have you get the packet from the court that says all the things that have to happen. Normally, we'll include a, the first CMC date, so you want to get everyone served with plenty of time, and and all of that. And you don't end up in court like the day after a complaint is filed. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, is this a preliminary injunction? And Kathy you added to that care to explain how this could could work so this this has happened to me in my career where a party party plaintiffs uh filed their complaint um and it was a i I won't get into legal specifics but um the uh it was a pressing issue they that they felt was pressing and that their damage was imminent and irreparable harm um, could, uh, could happen. And so, um, they immediately after I, it might've been a day or two after, it might've been the same time that they filed their complaint. They filed a request for a TRO, a temporary restraining order, um, and, uh, got a hearing set immediately. I mean, the, the, the case landed on my desk and I had a hearing the next day. This was in two or three days of it being uh, filed. And we had to brief it immediately and then go and argue. And it turned into a full-blown hearing with witnesses, openings, closing, witnesses. It was like a mini trial that lasted two days, um, all on very short notice. <laughs> um, 
and we didn't even go into it expecting, we thought it was just going to be oral argument on a motion, didn't expect there to be witnesses, but all the plaintiffs showed up, they all wanted to speak and the court let them do it. So at the end of the day, it was kind of, well, the, the, the judge said, okay, we'll, we'll hear witness testimony. And I'm in the back freaking out on a break going, oh my God, what are we going to do? But we, we ended up prevailing, but at the end, you know, because they couldn't meet their, uh, the burden of proof that they had um, on a TRO, but they, they did later also then try to seek a preliminary injunction as well. So typically for that quickly, what's going to happen is they're going to seek a TRO. Then they move to a preliminary injunction, which is uh, more fully briefed and has more evidence. So let's break down the elements because the preliminary injunction requirements and the TRO requirements are similar and doing a little quick legal research since it's been a while since I, I took remedies and had to deal with one of these. Uh, preliminary injunction is proper when the moving party, and I'll say same for a TRO, uh, that the moving party has the likelihood that it will prevail on the merits and the relative interim harm to the parties from issuance of the injunction weighs in its favor. Uh, an injunction, and uh, that's but v. State of California, for Cal 4th, 668, uh, pages 677 to 678, uh, under California Code of Civil Procedure 525, and 526, an injunction is a writ or order requiring a person to refrain from a particular act. And here are the requirements uh, that, that you have to prove uh, that, that there is well, when it appears that by the complaint or affidavits that the commission or continuance of some act during the litigation would produce waste or great irreparable harm to a party or to, to the action, when it appears that during the litigation that a party to the action is doing or threatens or is about to do or is producing or suffering to be done, some act in violation or of the right of another party to the action respecting the subject of the action and tending to render, render the judgment ineffectual. And Mark, did you add the federal note about this? Yeah, I've handled a few uh, TROs and preliminary injunctions, permanent injunctions in federal court over the years. I did one recently against the Department of Defense, actually. Uh, and hey, and it was discussed uh, recently with Rule 65 down in Mar with Mar-a-Lago and, and Trump. That was some of the factors the judge was considering. Uh, and it's very similar to what you described. Uh, for California. So uh, the Supreme Court, uh, and in some jurisdictions differ, the Supreme Court has held basically what, what you've talked about, four factors, succeeding on the merits, suffering irreparable harm in the absence of the relief, the equities tips in his favor, and the injunctions in the public interest. Now, what, has, what differs for some of them is that depending on the jurisdiction, sometimes you need to show evidence for each of those four sometime, and, and prevail in those, sometimes it's looked at as a sliding scale. So you can have one stronger than the other, and depending on which one, the court can still rule in your behalf. So if it's in, if the irreparable harm is not as strong, but the public interest is really strong, it could still tip, tip in favor. Uh, you know, we didn't really see in this <laughs> hearing whatever you want to call it, uh, other than a few magic tricks. We didn't, they didn't go into the details uh, as to these factors so that we can really get a good sense 
Although I guess if you just go on what Wong was talking about when he was describing, you know, the fabric of the universe and what did he say, the non-universe or, and he keeps referring to like humans and stuff as if he's not one. So I'm not quite sure. But anyway, everywhere and anywhere that exists, dimensional, non-dimensional, human, non-human is at risk. So I would think the public interest is uh, pretty strong in this case, although the judge took it under advisement. So we'll see. Yeah. Uh Looking at any of the other elements, uh, the likelihood of success on the merits, I think, is one to that would be a factor in this. And that goes to why are we here? Like, you know, what's the, the connection from Wong to uh, Blaze? And uh, Ayo, any, any thoughts on, you know, whether or not Wong would prevail? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think just based on based on you know the, the cause of action that he's bringing it the elements just simply aren't there um so you know when uh, under the um like like we've already discussed right like under the uh, competition part like long can't really show that he's a competitor unless he you know wants to start doing magic to show them and then he would be the unfair com competitor right like if he starts today to start doing shows and all of that so yeah i think that the i mean obviously there's you know some legal fiction that can be made if there is such a case that's made that the catastrophic damage that that you know donnie is causing is so great i think that there is the ways that the court can sort of, you know, mumbo jumbo its way into, you know, assuming, especially in the world that we're that, that, that we're looking at, right? This is a post blip world where they there is a very real understanding of all of these things that are happening. I think, you know, the court can make it work if they wanted to, but but I think, yeah, this I, I don't think that there is enough of a and you know and I think it sort of reveals itself at the end of this case, right? Like the fact that he doesn't win, which I mean, for whatever reasons that the judge is saying, I don't remember exactly how, but yeah, I don't think that Wong really can win on the merits of this case. And I think that that, yeah, makes sense that he wouldn't be able to get an injunction. So it reminds me of a very old Far Side cartoon for those who remember the Far Side and enjoyed it. And it was someone on stage surrounded by uh, nuclear warheads and you know the comment was you know juggling nuclear warheads more like juggling diffused nuclear warheads and that would be the type of thing where an injunction would make sense to keep someone from juggling live nuclear warheads because if one goes off the city is flattened <laughs> and, right. and it's like high degree of harm so if if Donnie Blaze's magic is viewed as like that kind of extreme category of we could actually in in a you know accidentally open a portal to hell or like let a dragon through like that could tip in the fail of uh, favor of like yeah there's high harm here and sorry. you see or at least I see temporary injunctions a ton in the environmental context too where. Um, someone suing to protect some natural site from dumping some waste product or something like that. And so you seek the temporary injunction 
to stop them from destroying the site you're trying to save during the time you're you're taking the litigation but i mean if they really wanted to do that in a case like this they're going to need more than madison the witness who was harmed <laughs> we'll say i mean you would do this with dozens of you know witnesses who've had harm caused to them expert witnesses who can talk about the fabric of reality and how the magic <laughs> is damaging it and you know or at least you know um. one and call <laughs> dr strange he can talk about damaging the fabric of reality he knows how to do it or he Peter might Parker have accidentally done it yeah well you can't call I, spider-man because nobody knows who he is well uh they don't know he's peter, peter parker, parker but i think right Dante, they still know who spider-man and peter parker is but not one in the same yeah any longer but i don't but, think they know any that he knows anything about oh any that, that they might not yeah that that's a possibility um but it reminds me there was a case a prior restraint case preliminary injunction back in the late 70s the u.s government went after a magazine called progressive to stop them from publishing a story about and this goes to your far side cartoon josh about how to build a nuclear weapon and the judge was talking about how you know this is all about really important first amendment rights he recognizes that but if you publish this magazine article and someone builds a nuclear weapon and blows up the world, nobody will have First Amendment rights. So it really doesn't matter. So they enjoined this magazine. Then, then they realized that the formula or mechanism to build it was publicly available in a library. So it didn't, didn't really matter. Uh, but, so, and, but I guess for, from the legal perspective, people should know that even if he loses the preliminary injunction, it's not the end of the case. It just means... They have to go to the merits of the case and the full regular civil process to see. You can lose on an injunction because maybe they couldn't show irreparable harm uh, or one of the other factors, but they could still win the case later on. Yeah, because they would be then doing full-blown discovery. There would be depositions. There would be expert depositions that would include expert reports. So like, there's a way to really dig into it to prove the case uh, on its merits. Kathy, since you've done real preliminary injunctions with witnesses, let's talk about Madison because I I went, oh, oh boy, howdy. Uh, can, can you help us break it down with, uh, is she competent to testify? I just wanna add this. She attends the show in LA which is at night. I'm going to guess she lives in LA because who just goes to LA to attend a magic show? It's possible. Maybe it was a Not a good one. Yeah. <laughs> well, until. Yeah, it's maybe there was a bachelorette party or engagement party, some, some reason for to go out and have fun. I get that. Courts during the day. When Wong's sling rings to her, she's partying again and drinking. Is she day drinking? Like what part of the world is she in? Because if it's in LA, that's a big red flag. If it's 10 o'clock in the morning and your witness is already slashed or smashed. Uh, she, she does make some comment about spending time in Florida, I think with her dad or her stepdad. So if court is in the afternoon, 
in LA. It's possible that it's five, six o'clock in Florida. It, it's possible. But again, I would be worried. <laughs> so, like, I would be worried. A little bit. Yeah. Well, because, you guys know it's always happy hour somewhere. <laughs> yes. But if that includes London, that's a brand <laughs> uh, All right. So let's jump into Madison and witness competency. Kathy, can you help us out? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think I've ever done a trial where I've had to ask a witness, you know, to confirm that they are okay to testify and whether or not they've consumed any drugs or alcohol in the last 24 hours. I think most people know you show up to court sober. Um, But, um, you know, in a deposition setting where you may not know the the witness that you're deposing, that, that is one of the first things that you ask in a deposition is you ask them, you know, whether or not they've taken any substances that could affect their ability to testify in that setting. Um, and, and then, you know, you find out, and, and, and I have done depositions where, you know, come to find out that the, the opponent has taken some kind of thing. And as we've gone through the deposit, taken some sort of medication, and as the deposition progress, it's very clear that, that it is affecting their ability to testify. And we have to suspend the deposition and then reconvene in a later time. Um, but I've never had to ask that in court. Um, I've, I've suspected there have been some opposing counsel who showed up who may not have been uh, uh, sober, but I've never had to ask that of a witness in court. I did a depot not too long ago, you know, when I got to the question of like, have you had any alcoholic beverages in the past 24 hours? I was stunned to hear the answer was yes. And I was like, oh, that's a new one. Like, and here, here's new questions to, to ask because it's, was it a beer with dinner last night? It's like, woo, or was it the keg with dinner? Like, those are the type of things to, to worry about uh, when you're deposing someone. So uh, I looked at the California rules for witness competency. And it's uh, evidence code 700 uh, and and a bunch of others that that follow. So every person, regardless of age, is qualified to be a witness and no person is disqualified to testify to any matter. So good. Uh, uh, Rule 701, a person is disqualified to be a witness if he or she is incapable of expressing him or herself concerning the matter so as to be understood either directly or through interpretation by one who can understand him or incapable of understanding the duty of a witness to tell the truth. Uh, And the proceeding held outside the presence of a jury, the court may reserve the challenges to the competency of a witness and until the conclusion of the direct examination. Is Madison competent to testify? Who wants to swing at that fastball? I mean, you know, she didn't help the case that much. So I think it depends on what side you're on, right? I'd say, hell yeah, she's competent. We don't know what her alcohol tolerance is. She was drinking then, she's drinking now, she drinks. And lots of people can do lots of things. As long as she's not driving while she's drinking and got here safe by, you know, with the assistance of the you know, brass knuckle thing in the little circle. She didn't drive. She got here very safely. 
she's said, you know, and maybe alcohol's made her a little more honest. She's, you know, so yeah, I, you know, and of course, the, you know, I didn't think that she was, I'd say how can a drunk person know what the truth is and, you know, maybe she's downplaying it for whatever other reasons. And she, did she say she's trying to be an actor or something? Or did I hear that? Did, did I, did I make that up? I, I didn't catch that, but she did, you know, come out swinging right. with about telling the truth. So I think she understood her obligation to tell the truth. I, I'm surprised to say this. I think she's competent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's just it's a it's not plan a <laughs> like the, it it's not a good look for your case but uh anyone else want to weigh in on the joys of a witness being very drunk who was not asked to testify earlier or had uh notice or anything like that I mean, just to say it, it does actually happen in real life. I've had witnesses in trials who were drunk, who were high, who were of questionable mental states. Mm. Um, sometimes you you do what you got to do and cross your fingers. But to, to Jen's, uh, I guess, discredit, you know that going in. I mean, if you're going to do a hearing like this or a trial like this, at least prep your witness, know what they're going to say. You don't, or at least it is very, very, very rare that a lawyer will put someone up on the stand, ask them questions, have their whole case tanked by the witness saying, no, I had a real good time. It was great. <laughs> Turn to the client and go, well, I guess this didn't go well. And, and yet a second time where no cross-examination second episode that we have seen this so only okay. one side ever gets to put on their case although the other side did get to put on magic including <laughs> the lawyer who and what cross-examination do you need after that though i mean or at least, i guess I, I just the acknowledgement that you know your honor we have no cross-examination this witness's testimony does absolutely nothing this witness is drunk your honor <laughs> <laughs> What are we going to have? Not an objection. <laughs> yeah, and we're good. <laughs> so. She's drunk, but it really helped my case. So right. Okay <laughs> Spooky fun. Not, if, you know, I could just hear someone saying if spooky fun would tear apart the fabric of the universe, then we've got to cancel Halloween. Well, and since she sat back down at counsel's table, maybe she is a plane. <laughs> yeah, it's... <laughs> Could be added very quickly with uh, with some fast moving paperwork. Yeah, there is. Yeah, that was pretty surreal <laughs> to, to, to watch. Uh, the lawyer doing magic. I mean, you. <laughs> it's like how to end up in contempt of court. Like you just there's just some things you don't do. That would be literally, you know, Lawyers go to court all the time and feel like they have to pull a rabbit out of the hat. If you <laughs> actually do that, uh, uh, Jordan, I'm sure you have, but I don't think you have Mr. Bunny with you at all times. So. I don't have Mr. Bunny with me at all times, but I have done a uh, card trick in closing argument as a <laughs> demonstrative um, of the state picking between three equally likely suspects. Uh, um, uh... 
Yeah. I don't want to yeah. see a video of that. That sounds like good. It didn't okay. work. They still convicted the guy, but yeah, it was solid. Points for creativity. So cool. Well done, well done sir. Uh, I I will. Boy. <laughs> so uh, the other part of this is Wong starts talking. He's not on the stand. It's like he's playing lawyer all of a sudden. Kathy, can you help us understand? Dude, why is this happening? Sorry, my Zoom screen disappeared for me. Um, <laughs> he, um, yeah, I, I was like, what? if that were my client, I would freak out. I would be yelling at them to shut up. You know, <laughs> I just don't know why you would let your, and why the court is even hearing from them, right? Only counsel or a self-represented party should be making arguments to the court or addressing the court um, from counsel's table or, or the well. But yeah, I was just like, what the heck is going on here? Why this would never happen? And, and that Jen lets it happen was disappointing. If he's on the stand explaining the risk, I understand that procedurally. This is, I hate this example, but it was after the closing arguments in the OJ trial where the court gave O.J. Simpson an opportunity to speak. And he said, Your Honor, I'm 100% not guilty. And the prosecution was freaking out because, like, he just testified. Like, so, again, there's, it's just, it's so abnormal and weird. And, again, it would make sense if he was on the stand, but he's playing lawyer, and that's just, that's just a magic trick too far. Uh, Jordan, can you get Mr. Bunny through security? Uh, unlikely, but possible. I mean, courthouses have security uh, that you have to go through. I have seen a parrot brought through security because someone wanted it to testify as a witness. And I wish that was a joke, but it's not. It wasn't my case. I was not involved. I just happened to be there. Um, so yeah, the bunny could get through. What's more problematic is that he brings smoke bombs into a courthouse. Like literal tiny explosives. They would have had a humongous problem with that. And I'm pretty sure it's also a crime. Uh, so, for the you can't see us on Zoom, but all the lawyers on on mute, we were all laughing hysterically. So about about the parrot. So God bless. The judge God. did not let the parrot testify much <laughs> to the self represented plaintiff's chagrin. <laughs> it, it must have been an emotional support bunny, though. That's how he could get it into the court. Not the smoke bombs. No emotional support smoke bombs but the bunny maybe it's just, there could be an argument for the for the bunny wabbit but oh god uh yeah so in like the california courts that i've been in you like you you don't have to it's not as intense as the airport or taking shoes off but you do take off your belt and watch before going through the metal detector 
your bags go through the x-rays so the bunny should show up i'm like they're they're the x-ray machine should be picking up a bunny rabbit uh marin 20 years ago had super lax security in comparison to the others i don't know if it's still that relaxed uh and it's it's a beautiful courthouse art deco design uh, for, like it's a frank lord Wright. it's it's gorgeous and there are all kinds of great uh county and some uh, uh other offices there for elected officials but again like that's the only one it's like i could see marin the bunny getting through that's it uh la county no the bunny all the magic stuff would would be discovered so let's talk about the fight at the magic castle does Donnie Blaze have mere negligence or strict liability for summoning demons that attack the audience? Ayo, what do you think? <laughs> Whatever he does, he's really, really helping the argument that you know will be made in sort of the follow the rest of the case, right? Like, and I and I was thinking this earlier when we we're talking about the, the TRO bit, right? Where the great thing sort of about this is you let the person go on doing the bad thing that they that you wanted the court to stop them from doing and helps you so when you do finally go to a court there is even better evidence such as demons and that audience full of people who experienced the fear and the actual demon jumping out at them and things like that um and and i think i mean it, it, yes he's got you know one he's been warned and so he doesn't even have the argument of I, I you know this was all a mistake like you went to court and there was an argument about how you could destroy the fabric of the universe and you know and and there's just a very clear um negligence about donnie blaze where where we see him start to do his norm the normal magic and he realizes the audience is bored with him and takes these extraordinary dangerous measures it's sort of like you know, I'd analogize it to like someone who's, you know, doing stunts and realizing this isn't good enough. Now I'm going to, you know, speed more or whatever and do something that they know is dangerous. So I think, yeah, he's um, he understands he understands the risk that he's taken. He's been made aware of it. He is doing this for really personal benefit. And when things go haywire, he can't handle it. And he's like run off to go call, you know, Sorcerer Supreme to save him. So, yeah. This guy is um, off the rails and it's gotta be stopped. Yeah, he also just created a new class of plaintiffs. So even with the settlement that happens with Wong, there's going to be a following lawsuit and that would be against the Magic Castle, the owner of said establishment, who I believe is Cornine List from the pictures on the wall, who was playing the hype man to, to, to Blaze. So they better lawyer up, and I don't know what their insurance coverage is like, but they should tender that immediately uh, to, to get competent representation to protect them. That said, uh, does Wong have a duty to help Blaze? And uh, Kathy, do you want to help us understand if that's the case or not? I don't think he has a duty. He does. I, I don't think there's a duty for him to rescue blaze i mean there there's no legal duty you know is there mm -hmm. a moral duty as a as a sorcerer supreme 
to go and prevent these portals from letting demons, you know, in maybe, you know, but there's no legal duty. Yeah, agreed. So Jordan, you said fighting demons probably isn't billable. Is it client <laughs> development? Do you, is there any way that, that Jen can enter this on her uh, timesheet uh, to, to highlight how hard she's working uh, to the managing partner? I, would, I wouldn't think so, but it depends on what's in your, uh, your client agreement, I guess, that they kind of yada yada over at the beginning of the episode so i mean if wong signed something that said you know helping me stop magic is within the scope of your representation then yeah she gets to bill for it okay uh i bill, I bill for lots of non-legal stuff all the time as long as it's part of yeah as jordan said part of the legal representation yeah why you hire a she-hulk lawyer so that for all the kinds of things that could come up, she's there. She's got brains and brawn. I need you to be a Hulk. And I actually, I mean, from him saying, I feel like your dad, to the way they interacted in the fight, great chemistry. That was actually was probably my favorite. It was my favorite part of the episode, seeing the two of them interact in true comic book fashion of fighting demons. Uh, so yeah, the non-courtroom stuff worked for me. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't going to say anything of it because I didn't, as I was watching it, her whole dating world, I'm thinking, okay, there's, no, there's nothing legal here, so I'm not going to comment on it. It's just kind of silly stuff. But I mean, funny, but, but silly. But now that I'm thinking about it, when, when she takes the, the guy, the doctor, the uh, pediatric. pediatric oncologist, uh, to bed uh, and he wakes up the next morning and she's Jen and he's like who are you I don't know if there's a misrepresentation claim that he might have against her I don't know if he put if she put something in her dating profile where you know she hulk sometimes mild-mannered Jen Walters the rest of the time but yeah you know I think the initial premise was that this guy's being wow what a jerk he is as he's walking out, but now I'm thinking there could be a legal claim that he's been defrauded. So I don't know. <laughs> I to the counter to that to that is when he was in sensitive man listening mode, and she expressed how she was asked to transform in the lobby, and it was turning into a condition of her employment. And he asked, "How did that make you feel?" That seemed highly problematic that he he's playing sensitive male. You know, it's he's like, not listening. Yeah, it's just he's, it's the art of uh-huh. And then what happened? So uh yes, and and I will not disclose who who raised this issue in chat, but what dating profile isn't a fraud. Um, <laughs> you know, courts might take judicial notice of that. So uh anywho. Uh, Kathy, you raised the issue that Wong told Blaze, call my lawyer. What's wrong with that? I know. I think he tells Jen to call Donnie Blaze at one point, but, uh, but no, he told, he told, oh, uh, he, he told, uh, it's the, the problem's still the same. So he, you're he, right. He, you're right. He tells, yeah, I got it wrong in my notes, but, um. Yeah, it's still the same issue. He 
uh, an attorney cannot talk to someone who was represented under the rules of professional conduct. It's uh, a violation. And unless you have permission from the opposing counsel, we know clearly that he's a represented party because he showed up at the preliminary injunction hearing with an attorney and he was represented. Um, I, I would presume that representation is continuing, right? Because as we said, the case is probably still continuing. Um, just even, even with Wong losing the preliminary injunction, it's still an ongoing case. Um, and so Jen should have called or, or, or he should have called his lawyer to call Jen um, or have, have, you know, somehow gotten permission to, to call Jen, but she should, or if he calls her, she's, she shouldn't take that call if she knows it's him or if she does and she answers the phone, realizes it's him. She should immediately say, I cannot talk to you. Please have your lawyer call me or put Wong on the phone. Is that dependent on what the conversation is about, right? Like I'm thinking if you're, if the other party's lawyer is also, a, you know, she-hulk and you're calling her to say, hey, demon fighting time. That might seem, you know, I mean, it's sort of in the scope of this case that they're having, but he's not calling her for anything other than, hey, come help in this emergency where I've got demons on loose. I, I think there could be an exception to the professional conduct rule because of the demon incursion. <laughs> that might make it permissible for a represented party to call the opposing attorney directly saying we your client your your client asked me to call because we're knee deep in demons and they're flying and they're scary please come help us i th i think the state bar <laughs> would give a mulligan on that one with like okay we understood you couldn't make all the phone calls that you just went straight to the lawyer we're going to give you that because of the of the situation but then it turns into the full-on blackmail duress situation of holding a demon at the represented party and saying, let's talk settlement. <laughs> this is bad. <laughs> uh, I'm going to try that with the government next time. <laughs> I don't know what else to do to get the government to agree to my settlement demand. So I'm just going <laughs> to hold a freaking demon in their face. <laughs> yeah, there's a, that's not a, fair way to get a settlement because it's i'm going to release this demon in your house so i you, you can't you can't do that um now we do get the the bummer of the ending where uh titania is going to sue she hulk for trademark infringement and one of you was able to dig in on this uh, there's all California also trademark rules, but this looks federal. Yeah, yeah, I pulled that up. Uh, I, I'm not a trademark lawyer. That that's for sure. Um, it's a, and and for those who are listening, trademark law. You know, we all as lawyers, we take our respective bar exams. You you pass the, you get out of law school. You take the bar. It, you don't even have to in some states get out of law school. Most yes, I think Wisconsin and Texas, you you can. In other states, you can be a paralegal for a bunch of years and then take the bar. But uh, one of the few areas where there's additional testing is in patent law. 
So you have to take a patent law exam, which actually is a really hard exam because I have some friends who did it much harder than the bar exam that any of us probably take in any jurisdiction across the United States. Uh, and, you know, this comes up uh, certainly a lot easier nowadays to, to patent and trademark things because so much of it's online and there are, you know, kind of like online instructions where you can just walk it through and services that will help you. Uh, unlike what it used to be before the internet. Uh, so you can trademark a name. And, you know, there are uh, famous people's names who they became th that person. I don't know if Sting trademarked his name or I'm not sure if Madonna did. Madonna would probably be more difficult because Madonna. we know of other Madonnas, but I don't know of any other Stings. Um, but She-Hulk... Um, you know, we don't we don't know enough about this, of course, because we don't know when Titania trademarked it. It looks the insinuation is after Jenny becomes She-Hulk that now Titania sees an opportunity and trademarks it after everybody's calling She-Hulk She-Hulk. Um, but the, uh, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, which is not too far from me here in northern Virginia, um, says that. Uh, it, you know, it's really going to depend on a number of, of facts. Um, it depends on whether you're using that name as a business uh, or if it's associated with the business. And while it's unlikely that they're going to register a surname or an individual's name or likeness, uh, there are certain conditions that could be met. So you got to file a statement of consent for the trademark uh, or you got to prove the name has a secondary meaning by being part of a unique brand that is used in marketing and commerce and is widely recognized. Um, and some cases a name can be trademarked when it is one of a kind, but it requires substantial evidence to prove this. So if this was a sort of power grab by, uh, or money grab by Titania, uh, it's unlikely I think that she would succeed uh, because the trademark would, would obviously hurt Jenny Walters using the name She-Hulk. Yeah, you get the first in time issue as well, because if Titania is in jail because of, oh, attempted murder or at least manslaughter from uh, traffic court. She had low blood sugar. It's OK. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> a lot, lot to unpack there uh, to be out of court that quickly. It's like, did the governor pardon you? What what happened here? Uh, there's the first in time issue that, you know, the fact that Jen Walters starts using the moniker She-Hulk because it's, you know, she's branded with it by the media, that that seems like a really tough uh, position for Titania to be in to say, I just went out and registered a trademark and now I'm going to stop you with it. It reminds me of an e-discovery issue that came up a decade or so ago. Uh, back when predictive coding was coming into play, and it's it's predictive analytics. It's like if you watch uh, a whole bunch of Marvel shows on Disney Plus, and if it starts recommending other Marvel shows, that's predictive analytics. Or Netflix is really good with it. If you start watching documentaries on Netflix, it's going to show you more documentaries that you might like. Same can happen with document review based on how you do issue coding. And all the different e-discovery providers were starting to build in predictive coding uh, engines into their software. 
well, one of these software companies decided to uh, take the position. We just, it was either they, they said they trademarked predictive coding or they made a copyright of the phrase predictive coding and then said, none of you can use this. And it failed. And it wasn't like they were going to be able to stop people from having that technology. That was like the Wright brothers trying to patent flight uh, after 1903 and all the litigation that they had trying to own flight. Uh, like it, that failed uh, as well. So this, uh, this seems kind of like saying, we predictive coding is our term and none of you can use that technology. It's like, that's not how the law works. And we can just call it predictive analytics instead. Uh, well, so and you know, one thing that a lot of people would recognize uh, when Trump was handling the apprentice and the mm -hmm. phrase, you're fired, he, he tried to, to trademark that. He failed in, in part because I remember watching the news at the time. There was a woman who had a, I forget where, like Illinois, Indiana, who had a bakery shop called You're Fired. You know, fired like in the cooking the baker, the, the bread and everything. And it predated The Apprentice. So it was it would put her out of business or at least require her to change the name. Now, I, I actually own a, a number, quite a number of items related to trademark and comics. Um, and especially called something called an ash can, which is in the olden days, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, it's what the comic book companies, DC, Fawcett, uh, I never saw a Marvel one, but DC and Fawcett in particular would submit mock comic books to the Patent and Trademark Office to trademark the title. And to your point, Josh, about timing is everything, DC beat Fawcett by literally a month in trademarking the Flash. And they tried to get it first, the Flash, to, that's what Captain Marvel might have been. Uh, but instead, uh, DC got it and the Flash became the Flash, the characters that we know. Fascinating. So there's, you know, the note about, uh, you know, the news bumper said that all charges against uh, a Titania had were, were dropped. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> so it's. <laughs> no, that makes zero sense. You might. And I, I use the term might very sparingly. You might win at trial on the some kind of altered mind state with the low blood sugar thing. Maybe in a world where there are comic book superheroes that that might work. I don't know about this one, uh, but there's there's just no way the state would drop those charges. I, no, you don't get to threaten a jury. That that's really bad for future jury service. Uh, if if it's okay for someone to come in and throw. Uh, a building at the jurors. Uh, finding jurors is hard enough. Uh, so yeah, there, there's some wild stuff there. Now, we have active discussion right now of, regarding the trademark of the by the o Ohio State. And uh, who wants to help explain that? Because <laughs> I'm not familiar with that happening. All I know is that they had filed a request to trademark the 
because, well, the, because they're the Ohio State. Um, and it was granted. And I was very surprised. I did not think that that they would ever be able to be granted that. I haven't read any of the the briefings on it as to, or, or the ruling as to why they were allowed to trademark it. But that just seemed unusual to me. It seems very unusual. I mean, this is not my area of law. I mean, I took trademark back in law school, but that was over 20 years ago. So I'm very foggy on how that could remotely be possible. So, I mean, I could get a service mark that's tied to artwork, but the word itself seems, that seems wild. And I think we need to find some IP lawyers to help us understand this because none of us do that. <laughs> so, uh, Io? No, I'm just thinking, I wonder, I, I know that Apple was able to, I don't know, I may be using the wrong word, if it's, it's trademark or copyright, the I that they use an iPhone and iPad and whatever else they put the I in front of. So I wonder if it's sort of a similar use but, where they can't stop anyone from using the word the, but when it, you know, is linked to the in front of the name of a university, it might be something like that. Yeah. Um, we're definitely going to have to research this because <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's one thing to have, you know, again, using I in front of book or pod, and that's your product line. I, I understand having that as a unifier for the products that you're releasing and that protection uh, could be sought to to protect you from knockoffs that are trying to capitalize on your brand. That at least makes sense. The is wild. Yeah. So there's a gonna have to bring in some of the IP lawyers to help us understand this because none of us do that. <laughs> we have a talented group, but that's not our strong suit. <laughs> so, so with that, uh, any other thoughts on this episode? Uh, yeah, it's uh, there was weird bartending advice at the end between as with the bumper with uh, Wong and Madison or Wongers. Uh, yes, that was. Uh, I, th look, every this the episode is just getting stranger every time. I, I think I'm just I'm I have accepted it, but look, I, I'm happy for Wong because he looks like he has a girlfriend now. A oh, best friend. I don't think he's best a friend. Well, best friends often grow into partners. <laughs> it's he's serious all the time. Having someone who's fun loving and you know, like who likes the same TV shows that he likes, that could be a good foundation right there. Opposite and to that, it could work out. Could I don't know about you guys, but when you know, when we can all get together for an in-person legal geek rendezvous. Yak milk and vodka is <laughs> going to be our the go-to drink. Oh no. And and the fact of the matter is, somewhere in the world where there is a happy hour, that is a real drink. I, yes. If it wasn't before, it is now. It is now. <laughs> Experiments are happening as we speak. So well, I want to thank you all for your time this Sunday evening as we've uh, explored the issues in She-Hulk episode four. You know, a 35-minute episode, we've now put about an hour 25 into. So uh, lots, lots, lots of 
uh, fodder for us to discuss as attorneys. So everyone, wherever you are, please leave a review on whatever podcast player you might listen to us on. And in this day and age, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay geeky. You all take care.